Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing the tragic death of Labour MP Joe Cox. I'm delighted to be joined by Jim Picard, the FT's chief political correspondent, Robert Shrimsley, managing editor of FT.com, our leader writer James Blitz, plus the Labour MP for Wales South, Alison McGovern. Thank you all for joining today. On Thursday this week, the Labour MP for Batley and Spend, Joe Cox, was murdered on the streets of Burstall in West Yorkshire. Her alleged attacker was apparently waiting for her after a constituency surgery and, according to reports, stabbed and shot her several times. She later died in hospital. The whole country has been shocked by what happened and tributes have been played across the political divide and the world to Miss Cox and her work. Jim, this really has been an awful week in British politics. I think everyone in Westminster and beyond has been shaken by the news and there's been an outpouring of grief from your experience, what do you know of Joe and what can you explain to our listeners what it's been like this week? The mood in Westminster, perhaps unsurprisingly, has been completely numb. People were stunned by what happened, absolutely horrified. The outpouring of grief crosses all political lines. It's an absolutely horrendous feeling right now for people who work in Westminster, and especially those who knew Joe Cox very well, especially people in the Labour Party. And the thing about her is you almost couldn't have made up someone who is more of a poster girl for a good MP. When you look at the fact that she'd spent this life outside politics, she hadn't sort of grown up in the Westminster bubble, she wasn't a former journalist, she'd actually worked in aid, in philanthropy, in trying to make the world a better place, and she'd only been there for a year and she'd already made uh, really quite a big mark on issues such as Syria. Alison, for our listeners who hadn't come across Jill before, how would you describe her? A woman who was absolutely committed to the people in the planet who have least those around the globe who need us most. I got to know her outside Parliament. She was a credible professional working in humanitarian aid and I got to know her through that really. And once she joined us in the Parliamentary Labour Party, she didn't waste a moment. And she was critical of the government, especially on their response to the Syrian civil war. But she used her her talent and her intelligence to challenge them in such a way, change policy. And she did something that many people in the tribal British politics would think was unthinkable, which is to work with people, you know, on the right of the Conservative Party who happened to agree with her to change the government's mind. And she was both clever, determined, but also incredibly funny and just a lovely, lovely person to be around who had a brilliant spirit, a never-say-bye attitude, and, you know, she was somebody who would never let us give up, never, ever. And I think that's why it's very hard to take that somebody who was so vital, so important to things that are happening in politics at this moment, who had such belief in progressive politics and standing up against prejudice and hatred should be taken from us in this way. It's absolutely abhorrent. 
Jim, one of the things that I was struck by was just the range and breadth of tributes that we've had this week from Joe. There was a very striking piece by Andrew Mitchell, who is the Conservative former International Development Secretary, who explained how he'd managed to become friends and build an alliance. And it's those kind of things you don't really see that often in Westminster. And it really made us realise what a huge talent that we've lost and how much more he should could have given to our politics. Absolutely. And in, in a world where people are incredibly cynical about politicians... They think that politicians are on the make. And here was somebody who was from a working class background. Her father worked in a toothpaste factory. She went to Cambridge. Uh, she fought very hard to get where she was. She worked for those who, who were less privileged than the rest of us. And you're right about her being open to working cross-party with people like Andrew Mitchell. And in fact, I can't claim to have known Joe Cox well at all, but the last conversation I had with her, she was offering uh, an opinion piece with David Davis about tax avoidance. You could see both of them being critical from someone from the Labour Party, someone from the Conservative Party, working across the political divide to try and make the world a better place. In that case, I'm trying to crack down on tax avoidance. Because it's extraordinary, Alison, that even on Wednesday she was still the campaigner to her heart. She was on the River Thames in this very odd display of campaigning around the EU referendum. And I think as long as she was very ardent in her pro-immigration views and for Syrian refugees, there's a lot there that she's done to contribute to our political life. Yeah, and I think the point is that she had a very strong sense of values and that it didn't matter where in the world that you happened to be born you had a right to certain things. And she spent every day of her life working for those values. She wasn't somebody who thought we could just wait till our party got back into government. She was spending all of her time offering solutions to the current government, listening to those in her constituency and trying to work on the things that they needed to stop loneliness and help older people in her part of Yorkshire. She's somebody who didn't just kind of talk about politics and political things and pontificate. She always had a practical idea to change it, and it's a huge, huge loss. And there's an absolutely devastating irony that the last project she'd been working on was one to try and tackle loneliness, and the man who's been arrested for her murder was someone who's been living alone for 30 years, and just, just a devastating irony. Very much so. Now, one of the things that's come out of this is the topic about MP safety and constituency surgeries here. Alison, I was wondering if you can give, give us any sense here, because obviously one of the great things of British politics is that you can phone up your MP, you can go and speak to them, and questions will be asked now about you know, how safe MPs are from your personal experience. You know, Is this a problem? Does there need to be more done? I mean, I think that what makes this attack so devastating and Joe's murder so horrifying is that like me she represented her hometown the place where she was born and where she grew up and speaking purely personally for myself when I'm in my constituency a place that I know you know like the back of my hand there is nowhere that I would say I feel safer so it's very hard to take that this happened to her there the police are good in giving us advice and helping, you know, but we are reliant on them and the parliamentary authorities to take an assessment of security risk. But I can only say that from my experience, they have always been absolutely ready to make sure that my office was safe. Most importantly, my staff were safe, who were there week in, week out, working with the public. But the vast majority of people are incredibly respectful. They you know, really value the kind of direct contact that people have with politicians in British politics. I think I speak to, you know, colleagues in other countries about how distant their politics can be. And I think that, you know, we don't want to lose that connection that people have with us and the chance to have a private conversation every now and again. I think it's absolutely important. So 
we'll listen to the police and let them lead on safety as they always do. But, you know, Britain is by and large a safe country and that's why this feels so awful and horrific because otherwise, by and large, you know, we are safe in towns and cities across Britain. Yet there was a survey not so long ago of, I think it was around 240 MPs, in which 43 had had fairly serious incidents involving members of the public and around 100 had had threats. And you can say some of those threats may have been more serious than others. Some of them may have been social media trolls sat on their own at keyboards, never actually posing a threat. And yet there is a feeling among quite a few MPs that they don't always feel safe. And I think that doesn't reflect brilliantly on Britain right now. And I think if something can be done about it, it would be very welcome. And then just finally, we Parliament is being recorded on Monday. Well, obviously, this has come in the midst of the EU referendum campaign at the moment. And it looks like this is going to be a unifying moment here. We've had tributes from David Cameron, John Burko, Jeremy Corbyn and Hillary Clinton. But I think the strongest words we had today were for Brandon Cox, Joe's husband, who said the fight against the hatred that killed her must continue. I think if Monday marks the path towards a more gentle more thoughtful, less partisan politics, then I think that is something that everyone will welcome going forward. The death of Jill Cox has had a major chill on British politics and has raised many questions about the nature of political debate in this country, MPs and how they conduct their surgeries and speaking to the public, and also the EU referendum campaign, which has been ongoing and all campaigning has rightly been halted during this time. James Blitz, there's certainly been a sense over the past few months and maybe even longer that the way politics has been conducted in Britain about a vilification of the political class has maybe gone too far. And I think Joe Cox represented someone who is the best possible politician who represented the area she came from, was very in touch with the local people and a lot for her constituency. What happens now after this tragic event? Well, first of all, I think you're right. I mean, I think I'm like a lot of people. I didn't really know anything about Joe Cox before this happened. And as I've said in the leader tonight, I, I sort of wish I had not met her necessarily, but at least seen her in action or had taken paid more attention because she's exactly the kind of person one would want to have as one MP. She'd worked for a charity. She'd been in some of the most dangerous parts of the world in Afghanistan and Sudan. She was incredibly committed on the issue of Syrian refugees. Cambridge graduate loads of energy and leading a very modest lifestyle. My first thought is that um, we've, since the 2009 expenses scandal, the British public's had a really negative view of politicians. It's regarded them as venal, corrupt, untrustworthy. And I think her. Uh, this is one of those moments where people are taking a really hard, long look at one person who's in Parliament. And I think they should come away from that with a feeling that actually... There's a lot of MPs who are pretty good. They're very idealistic. They've got high ideals. They live modest life t lifestyles. And they really are interested in public service. And I think that's one of the lessons that one hopes will come out of her life. Because, Robert, obviously social media and the internet has whipped this up, but it's also been the press as well, that it's very easy to knock the political class that are in it for themselves, all the rest of it. And I think, you know, when you look at those surveys of trust, politicians are are very low down on the list, um, even maybe not as low down as we are as journalists. journalists yes. Exactly, journalists are at the bottom there. But when you look back at someone who's, who was an MP for only one year but was a campaigner for a lot of her life, it does just show maybe we should just think a bit more about our politicians and just a bit more respect. Well, I mean, like James, I spent over a decade as a political reporter working in Westminster 
and the overwhelming impression I got from politicians of all parties, even those whose views I actually happened to disagree with quite strongly, was that they were there for the right reasons. They mostly go there because they want to do, want to make the country better along the lines of the ideologies that they have. And, you know, most of them could earn a lot more money somewhere else. Now, they didn't do themselves any favours quite clearly in the, expenses, in the expenses fiasco. Clearly, they looked terrible. But the fact is, if they were in it for the money, they would, wouldn't be in Parliament. They'd be somewhere else. They do this because they actually believe in public service. Even the ones you, the public most dislike, even the hate figures in government or the hate figures in the opposition, they're mostly there for the right reason. And it's worth remembering. Indeed. The other thing to come out of this, James, is this issue of constituency surgeries. And as I spoke to Jim earlier about, there's an increasing level of violence and people attracted to these. And, you know, we don't want to get into a situation where you haven't seen America, where politicians are followed around with a huge entourage of bodyguards all the time. But on the other hand, you know, this attack is so appalling and so just not the sort of thing you expect to happen in Britain. There are questions about the safety of MPs. Yes, I think there are two things that are happening here. One of them is that, as you say, British MPs still have a very strong tradition of holding a constituency surgery usually every Friday when the House isn't sitting. And on the occasions that I followed MPs at them, there is absolutely no security at them at all. They're totally one-on-one -on -one with the member of the public. And it, it, that's quite something. On the other hand, I think a lot of the debate and what I might call these word discourse over politics is becoming increasingly febrile, increasingly unpleasant. One of the areas you see it particularly is on Twitter. The debate on Twitter between people has become often used as violent language. It's particularly unpleasant the way in which anon people anonymously, men anonymously, verbally attack women, female politicians on Twitter. Those two things have sort of come together on one hand, I think. On the one hand, you've got these open surgeries. On the other hand, you've got this verbal violence. And I, I wouldn't necessarily... I think it's very, very important not to draw any conclusions about this case because we just don't know. I've been in so many times... You try and make a judgment on something and actually you don't know what the issues are behind a killing or an act of terrorism. But there are two trends there which I think are very worrying. You mentioned the situation in America, Seb, and I think one of the things that we've seen in British politics over the last few years is an Americanization of the way debate is conducted. And one of the key points to that, it's something that the right in Britain are learning from the right in America, which is that alternative views of life. You know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there were such things as established facts. There were people who were trusted to tell the truth. Now, if the established facts don't suit you, you can find an alternative discourse, an alternative media, and challenge even the most fundamental truths. And I think part of the process, therefore, is that you create an environment in which any expert can be challenged. And if they're not saying what you want, they can be described as a traitor, a liar, and on it goes. So we create an ever ratcheting up, a cycle where we increasingly ratchet up the rhetoric and the language and the dialogue and the distrust. And as James says, we don't know if any of that is directly relevant to this case. It, it may well not be, but it's a very uncomfortable environment. I certainly think people are just taking a stomach and looking how we conduct politics regardless of this. It's certainly put a lot of things into perspective at the moment. But I think on the other hand, we have seen the best of British politics in the past 24 hours that if you see Jeremy Corbyn and David Cameron, who have never appeared together, they went to her constituency today and spoke together. And there's been tributes across the spectrum from MPs and Parliament is being recorded on Monday. So I think in those situations, you can see where people can put aside all differences and accept some universal good. You know, I mean, I always you're right. 
but I'm, I always slightly recoil when I hear people talking about we've seen the best of British politics in the face of some tragedy because the trouble is I'd rather see the best of British politics more often and if we saw the best of British politics a lot more often we might not find ourselves in these circumstances as often. Yes, I agree with you. But nonetheless, I do think... No, well, I do. Yes, I do agree, but I do. I do think we've seen some things which really have stood out in the last 24 hours. First of all, I very much like the way in which the Conservatives said they would immediately not not contest the by-election. That was immediate and important. And and UKIP and the Liberal Democrats as well. So it's going to be Labour free run. That's important. They said it immediately. That was very important. I think I was at a time when one has been so critical of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. We've been critical of it as a paper. I was. It's been good to be reminded that Labour has got very, very good MPs. There are some of the tributes that have been paid, the way they've been paid. I was very struck on Newsnight last night that four Labour MPs gave a very moving appreciation of Joe Cox. On the Tory side, Andrew Mitchell gave an extremely moving tribute to her on the PM programme. So I think one has seen a lot that is good, and I think one forgets about it, actually, sometimes. I was very torn when I heard the Conservatives and the other parties following saying they wouldn't contest the constituency by election that will be forced by her death. One absolutely sees the reasons behind it and the generosity of spirit, and one instinctively is drawn to that. And on the other hand, I also sometimes think, well, the best way to serve democracy is to show that it keeps going and to not present vote the vote of this constituency with effectively an imposed candidate who Labour will choose and no attempt to fight it. I mean, I think we all instinctively feel fear towards this is the right thing to do. On the other hand, if you're going to maintain democracy, the best way to do it is to carry on. And then finally, the last matter is, of course, that this tragic event has happened right in the midst of the EU referendum campaign. Now, all campaigning has been suspended on Thursday and Friday. Limited things are going on over the weekend. And with Parliament being recorded on Monday, it looks as if Tuesday will be when things pick up again. But I very much think, James, the tone and timbre of this campaign will completely quieten down because I think it would be very inappropriate to go back to the very visceral nature that we were seeing over the past few weeks. Yes, I think it will. Whether there was much more that could shift the campaign, I don't know. I mean, all of the arguments have been played out and we were coming down to the final appearances of the party of the leading party figures. Obviously, an attempt will be made to try and draw out something from the Joe Cox murder in terms of the wider campaign. There's obviously the whole question about whether this man shouted Britain first. And some newspapers are certainly trying to extract an argument, which is, if that is the case, if this man is part of a far-right movement, it reflects some of the coarseness of the anti-immigrant argument that's being made. One's got to be incredibly careful about that. We've argued in the paper, and I think it's right to argue it, that people are perfectly right to have concerns about immigration. It's understandable. But the tone in which people address those issues has got to be very careful. Well, it's been a pretty unpleasant campaign up till now. I think it probably will be a little more sombre in its final days. And I think mainly, though, because there are only a handful of days to go. I don't know that the ceasefire would have lasted that long if we had another three or four weeks, unfortunately. And that's it for this week's episode. We'll be back next Saturday for another instalment of FT Politics. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast... You might like to try our FT News podcasts, which focus on one of the main issues of the day and bring you the insights and expertise of our global network of journalists, as well as outside contributors. You can download these at ft.com slash podcasts most days of the week. 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.